Welcome to Raising It, a podcast series by Noble Ambition that shares the extraordinary stories of mega gifts and multi-million dollar philanthropy campaigns from the leaders who delivered them. During the past decade in Australia, we've seen more record-breaking multi-million dollar gifts announced than ever before. These gifts have transformed the charitable sector for the benefit of communities everywhere. But while we celebrate the philanthropists associated with these gifts, the stories of how these gifts came into being often remain untold. Raising It takes you behind the scenes to hear directly from the individuals who made these campaigns happen. We'll meet amazing leaders committed to achieving their noble ambitions through philanthropy, in education, health, marriage equality, climate change and more, and hear how they galvanize boards, teams and donors into making the impossible possible. The host of this series is me, Melissa Smith, founder and CEO of Noble Ambition, with almost 20 years experience in philanthropy and fundraising, and Australia's only global fundraiser of the year. I hope that by sharing these stories of inspiring leadership, we can encourage others to achieve their own noble ambitions. This week's episode centres around one of Australia's most beloved sites, Sydney Taronga Zoo and Taronga Western Plains Zoo. Behind the koala encounters and giraffe enclosures is a lesser-known story of extraordinary fundraising, which has seen the zoo raise over $100 million for conservation over the last 20 years. I would like to welcome Cameron Kerr to the podcast. Cameron is the CEO of Taronga Conservation Society, a role he has held since 2009, having joined the Taronga Conservation Society Australia as first the General Manager of Marketing and Communications, then General Manager of Life Sciences. In 2022, Cameron was named FIA's Fundraising Champion of the Year. Welcome, Cam. Thank you. So, Cam, you've dedicated a career to conservation at the zoo. Growing up, can you tell me some of your earliest recollections of the importance of conservation or wildlife to you as a child? I think it started out as a child just loving being with wildlife. Early in my life, in primary school, we lived on the northern beaches of Sydney and I just spent all my time in the rock pools. I had a friendly octopus. So, you know, I could really relate to that TV series in <laughs> South Africa because I, there was an octopus that I knew in the local rock pools and uh, I felt that he knew me, may not have, who knows. Uh, and then my parents had a property between Lithgow and Bathurst and I just fell in love with being in the bush being really quiet on my own and seeing the kangaroos hop by, you know, me feeling I'm being very sneaky and and getting to see them there. And I think just the relationship with animals more broadly. I remember trappers used to set rabbit traps on our property and my parents would have put up with me bringing home all these rabbits that I'd saved out of the rabbit traps and feeding them up with all the grass from around the septic tank at home. So just, you know, a real affinity with animals when I was young. And then in my teens, I had such wonderful role models, you know, David Suzuki, Save Fraser Island, you know, people wouldn't realise today that Fraser Island was going to be a sand mine and we nearly lost that. Bob Brown, you know, the Franklin River when I was a little bit older, these were things that really inspired me. And seeing Jacques Cousteau movies, you know, these are the sorts of things that really gave me a really strong connection with nature. And I think that's where the conservation piece comes in. You know, once you've got the connection and you fall in love with it, you want to do something about looking after it. And that's what we need to do across the planet. So you joined the zoo in 2000 as the General Manager of Marketing Communications. Can you remember that first day when you walked on site? 
I remember the weeks leading it up to it very clearly, and it's not a story you'd necessarily think of. I was in Perth at a conference. I worked in the pharmaceutical industry at the time, so quite a contrast. And I got a call for a third interview. And when you're up to the third interview, you know you're on a pretty short, short list. And I had nightmares that night because I realised the gravity of the situation. When I was a child, my memories of Taronga were horrible, I have Mm. to say. Um, I remember the primates being in terrible concrete boxes. And I thought, I've been lucky enough, I've had a wonderful education, you know, science, worked in science and research for a number of years, then moved into business. I thought, if I take this job on, I really want to change that place. And I need to know that the CEO I'm working for is genuine about that. I got the impression he was from the first two interviews. So that third interview was a really important one for me. And it meant between the two of us, and it literally felt like the two of us, the two of us and his secretary, I'd have to say, we needed to urgently work on that place. And it was exciting because, of course, there was a wonderful team underneath, but they needed resources, they needed direction, they needed a vision. So that was the start of my journey. Those first couple of weeks at the zoo was a real eye-opener because I realised how bad things were. You know, when you don't have resources, you get cultural problems amongst the staff because the scarcity of resources for them to do their jobs properly. The infrastructure was not well maintained. It had 20 years of, you know, not enough resources to fund it. And pretty much it was clear to me, we either turn this thing around or we shut it down. And that was literally where Taronga Zoo was. So what were your priorities then? The very first priority had to be urgently get money into the business. As an example, I was driving home from a meeting in the city with other cultural institutions and I knew it was coming, but it was announced on the radio that Taronga Zoo's annual report had been tabled in Parliament and the auditors had put a qualification on our audit certificate as a going concern. You know? Oh, dear. So I'd literally said to my wife, honey, be really nice to your boss because you know I should have done a bit more due diligence before <laughs> I took this, <laughs> this job on. So, you know, the first up was apply our business and marketing skills quickly to get cash in the business. We ran a campaign, took a risk and had a really strong Easter school holidays. And then that gave us a little bit of confidence to do the next thing and very quickly built it up. Obviously, lots of talks with government ministers about the seriousness of the situation for the organisation and then rallying support. At first, though, that had to be very quietly done and carefully done because we needed to understand what we were dealing with. So what role did fundraising play, if at all, at that very early stage? It didn't. I think the interesting thing was, first of all, we need to get the business stable Mm. and then we need to create a vision so that people get on board. And I was quite serious about the point that, you know, do zoos have a role in the 21st century? That's, That's a question that absolutely needed to be asked. And particularly a zoo that's not looking very good and not presenting well and not inspiring the next generation of conservationists, you know. You can't inspire little kids if they don't see animals in lovely settings and know that those animals are being looked after and cared for. So um, the first step was to, to get the business stable. Can't say it was you know going to be strong, but at least get the business stable. And then I'd say by November that first year in 2020, we ran our first fundraising event mm-hmm. and, you know, we'd got together the idea of a foundation. So the idea was to get the business to fund the operations 
We're fortunate, about 15% of our operational funding comes from government, but it's only 15%. That's much, much less than most other cultural institutions. So we need to have a constant supply of revenue coming in to look after the animals, service the people, keep them safe, you know. And then the foundation was there to create inspiration, to, to do something way above, to transform the organisation as it is today and turn it into something that the city and the country, you know, regional New South Wales can be really proud of. So that first sort of foray into fundraising back in sort of 2000, you mentioned when we first spoke about some butterflies going a bit haywire. Tell me about that first moment that you had in introducing fundraising to the zoo. What was that like? Well, I'll talk a little bit about the approach. The first thing to declare was, you know, the CEO and I never run a foundation. We didn't know anything about fundraising. (laughs) We both came from a business background. So Mm. that was our thing, you know, that was the bond that we had. And probably two or three people in the whole organisation that had any, you know, commercial exposure. So we did what you do when you don't know what you don't know. We got in some consultants and we had some wonderful people that were very committed that worked with us. And they explained to us about the pyramid of donors. And, you know, we need to get people in at the bottom of the pyramid and work them up the chain. And that sounded like a long way off. And we had, you know, some pretty urgent things. And these are all the different mechanisms that you can raise money through. So we had a zoo parent program and, you know, we revved that up and gave that a bit of profile. And, you know, I'll talk about one of the wonderful outcomes of those little small gifts that start at $60 and end up in millions, right through to. Well, everyone does fundraising events, you know, and you look across at the gold dinner for the hospital and you think, well, we need to do a gold dinner. So naively, we, we organised our gold dinner and it was an outdoor event. It was a safari across the zoo. You'd eat all the, all the different food types from around the world with the animals in the background and it would be a glorious night, everyone in their finery out in the wild. The night before, it was on a Saturday night in November, and the night before, the wind came into Sydney in a southerly, the rain was going sideways, and one of the thoughts was to set up from the events, people had this wonderful idea of a beautiful tent, big marquee, full of butterflies with trees in there and plants, and you'd walk through and see all the butterflies and really feel connected to nature. The trouble is, I think it was about a 40-knot southerly came in and Taronga faces straight onto the harbour in the south. All those butterflies ended up flying around and ending up in Palm Beach and all over Sydney. Any infrastructure we had in place would fallen over and tipped over and we thought, oh, what is going to happen to our outdoor venue? You know, we hadn't, it didn't even have a plan B. That's how naive we were for our outdoor uh, event. We've come a long way since then. We've come a long way way since then. 20 (laughs) zoofaris later, uh, we've got it down to a fine art. And wherever those butterflies ended up, maybe. I hope they had a good life. I hope they have a good life. Palm Beach wouldn't have been a bad spot to land, I guess, you know. (laughs) Good prospect research perhaps up there. So it was an interesting style and particularly when you talk about that donor pyramid and, and building up donors from the base up. It does definitely sound like fundraising and how it used to be back in 2000 and early stages. It takes time to build these relationships. What I'm keen to learn, and as we'll come into with the capital fundraising in a bit and some very significant gifts that you've secured, how did you then manoeuvre through into the role of CEO in 2009? You were appointed into that role. What was the expectation of the role of CEO in terms of fundraising at that Mm. time? Mm. Well, it was interesting. As you can imagine, the foundation 
when I first started was myself and the executive officer for the CEO who then came across and worked with me as the foundation in a sense. So I ran all the commercial areas, but the foundation was one of those. And it really was just the two of us. And we worked out at one point, one of our targets, we had to raise $15,000 a day and there was two of us, you know, and we sort of look at the clock at the end of the day and go, hmm, okay, we've got to make up a bit more tomorrow. So that's how green we were. Of course, we had some support and we had some sponsors. As I moved through out of the marketing role and into life sciences role and running the in-grounds operations of the zoo, I never lost that connection with the foundation and fundraising. Because I had the knowledge, I knew how important it was. And I guess I really was working very closely with the animals now and the teams that delivered the conservation work and the conservation work that we had planned. So I was pretty close to it all the way through. As the CEO, it was a very easy role in for me to go into that. That had helped a little bit because in a sense, I understood the importance of it. And when I look to other CEOs in other organizations who aren't as hands-on in the fundraising, I can see the advantages of being a hands-on CEO when it comes to fundraising. You know, having those connections, building the trust of the donors, having been there a long time, that helps. And being CEO even for 10 years, a lot of the big seed donors we've had for our visionary projects in the last few years haven't been fallen out of the sky. They're ones that have seen that I've stuck around, that I'm genuinely committed to these visions, that I'm passionate about it, and I will see them through. Because you can imagine as a donor, the last thing you want is to put support behind something, then a new CEO comes in with a new vision, and what you've been supporting doesn't have the focus that it did before. So I think those are ingredients that chairs of boards should be considering when they're looking at cultural institutions and other conservation organisations. <laughs> I couldn't agree with you more. And having essentially built fundraising sort of from scratch, from a few butterflies on a lawn to where it came in 2009, you did have a really good appreciation of the challenge of it, how important it is to invest time and build those relationships. What were some of your priorities stepping into that CEO role? What were some of your key priorities to begin with? Because the zoo has changed significantly from 2000 to 2009 and even more so of 2022 where we are today. But tell me some of those initial priorities in 2009. I would say that I'm an accidental CEO because I'd never intended to be a CEO. <laughs> I never intended to go into business, to be honest. <laughs> you think about my youth growing up around the Fraser Island protests, the Franklin River, pretty anti-establishment for most of my teen years and 20s. So to end up in the suit role came because I wanted, dare I say, the power to actually make it happen and use that power in a way that I thought was good and, and going to achieve. So the first priority as CEO was to reposition the organisation as the Taronga Conservation Society Australia. I remember sitting down with our executive team at our first offsite at Coogee and one of those hotels that we've all sat in for executive offsites. <laughs> And putting the challenge to the team is, so, you know, we work in conservation, we work in education, we work in science and in tourism, but we're only a bit player in all these. We're a tiny fly spot in all those sectors. Is there really a role for us in the 21st century? Fortunately, they didn't all go, yeah, maybe there isn't. They pushed back hard and we said, no, we do have a role. And they could see why organisations wanted to partner with us. It was a commitment from the executive to say then, okay, let's make sure that this organisation is 
delivering so powerfully across our key areas that society never wants to get rid of us, that they absolutely can't do without us. And that's been the vision from the start. So I think that priority from those nightmares, the sleepless night I had before I started, to transform first the organisation and now, quite literally, transform the sector, the industry. So I'm president of the Zoo and Aquarium Association for our part of the world. And I'm very proud of the other CEOs that are on that board because we are like an executive in the South down here. And I have to say the Northern Hemisphere looks to us and say, for such a small group of people down there, how do you, why are you leading in animal welfare and the audit process? Why are you leaders in conservation? Proudly, it's not me, it's our team. We've won the Global Zoo Conservation Award. We've won the Global Sustainability Award. Five or six zoos in the Northern Hemisphere that I really look up to. What many wouldn't realise is that zoos globally are the third largest contributor to wildlife conservation funding of any organisation. So zoos have a really important role to play in wildlife conservation funding, not to mention all the work that they're doing on the ground. So what role does philanthropy play in helping you achieve that vision? Well, without philanthropy, we wouldn't have been able to set ambitious goals that people want to get behind. And I went to the Ford Foundation early on and you know, spoke to people there with wide eyes and very green. As I said, I knew nothing about fundraising. They said to me, Cameron, you know, being a cottage industry organisation and scrimping and saving here and there, you'll get donations and people will respect that. But if you really want to achieve things and you want big donors, you've got to be brave and you've got to have vision. And I never forgot that. And it takes a while to build that confidence. But of course, when you work in an industry and you see the gaps and the needs, you get excited about some big plans and then you get the confidence to talk about them and then you spread that vision. And if you're excited and committed to it, people get on board and they get excited about the vision and it becomes their vision. And that's not done by architecture, that's they are part of it then. And for each of our big, really exciting, bold projects that I can say confidently have profound impact on saving Australian wildlife and in many cases globally, wildlife overseas, They've come because a few people, a few seed donors have seen the, and understood and, and got on board and got behind it. And without philanthropy, none of that would happen. And one of those very ambitious projects was the Institute of Science and Learning in 2014. Now, philanthropy was critical to the realisation of this project. You needed to raise approximately $30 million in total and you secured a wonderful $10 million cornerstone gift from an anonymous donor. Can you tell me how did that gift come about? And was that actually one of the largest gifts that the zoo had secured to date? I think it's probably one of the largest gifts the zoo and aquarium industries received in the Southern Hemisphere, really, you know, because philanthropy is not that big in our area, in, yeah. the, in that sector. And I, I think because the industry is not seen as that relevant in society for many years. The true conservation zoos in Australia and New Zealand now are attracting philanthropy because we've got a little team there that are really committed and leading the global charge. So that particular donor, like many across institutions, started out with an interest in a particular area of our work. That person was involved with the zoo from very early on when we set the vision and supported us in different ways with time and you know financial supported events and things like this finding their way with the organization 
had a real commitment and interest in science and a commitment and interest to women in science. And one of the things for me, for the Institute, was at that time, scientists weren't being respected terribly well. The whole climate debate was, you know, diminishing the value of science. There was also a time where I think, you know, and we've still got a very long way to go, but I think there was some questions about the way women were seen by our leadership as a nation at that time. And I can proudly say that 70% of our scientists are female and our head scientists ever since I've been there has been a female. And we wanted to show that off and show that young men and women could have a career in science and they would have a wonderful life and that women could lead in science. And you know, we're in a very different place in 2022 to even 2012, 2013, you know, mm. before when I was grappling with these issues. And this particular donor loved that idea too. That person had, had that in mind. And I think that's why they committed the large seed donation. Also because they had trust. They knew that I was very committed as the CEO. I had influence as the CEO. And by my nature and my personality, I would see it through. That's where the big seed gifts for us have come from, people that have understood that we're committed and we will genuinely see it through. Yeah. So tell me, what would be the impact of this institute for the zoo and, and for science more broadly? Mm. I claim to never having an original idea in my life. <laughs> uh, I like to see great things around the world and then apply them at home or to my, to my little world. And what I noticed is our scientists are doing fantastic work in rusty old containers, you know, refrigerated containers and little broom closets and things like that, yet literally publishing on the world stage and being requested to travel the world and share their knowledge. And I thought, well, I want that knowledge. I want others to come and share their knowledge with us in Australia. And I realised that there was no centre of excellence for focusing purely on wildlife, conservation, science and education anywhere in the Southern Hemisphere. The Smithsonian Institute's one at Front Royal in the US. There is the Durrell Society on Jersey Island, one in Germany. And, you know, I've been lucky enough to visit these wonderful institutions with wide eyes and love the work they were doing, could see that our teams were doing as good a quality work, but they were doing it out of a broom closet. So the vision was to create a centre of excellence that focused entirely on wildlife conservation for sharing the knowledge of conservation, science and education. Now we have the Jane Goodall Institute working out of there, you know, the IUCN use it as a base when they're there, Flora and Fauna International use it as their base, WWF like coming over and having their meetings with us there using our rooms. And the idea is to share, not, you know, we want it to be out. This is the Silicon Valley for wildlife conservation in the Southern Hemisphere. And it's been incredibly powerful because conservation is a wicked problem. Our species collapse around the world and in Australia particularly is systems-based problems. It's, it's our economic systems. It's our energy systems. It's the way we've chosen to live. If you're going to tackle complex systems-based problems, you've got to have people networking and thinking at that high level about how do we deal with this? There's no magic bullets in this. There's no quick wins. It's not throw money at it. It's not use a particular new magic technology. It's all of us working together and applying all those technologies. And I have to say, people say, you know, do you have any hope for, you know, we're on a tipping point here. Do you have hope? And I say, well, one thing about humans is we're very good in a crisis. 
we're pretty awful given our intelligence at looking over the horizon, but we're pretty good at in a crisis. And we've seen that in the last couple of years with the way we've generated new vaccines and weaseled our way out of this zoonotic disease crisis that we've, to be honest, those that work in our industry have seen coming for a very long time. But now with the technologies and the materials that we have available, if we share that knowledge and we have a genuine commitment from leadership and we put the resources behind it, absolutely we can tackle the problems. We've just got to do it really fast. So the Institute is an extraordinary physical building, but it's all that goes inside that is is incredibly powerful and very compelling. And you can see how the donors must have responded to you and your vision for this. In securing that $10 million gift, was that secured early in the sort of discussions? Because then how did you go about securing the remaining 20? Mm. I felt we needed a seed donor at the start. And if that person has respect in the community, then that's really powerful in your messaging. So I was then able to go to the state government and say, hey, I've got a very respected person in our community in Sydney who wants to support this. This is important. It's needed. We've got a crisis in New South Wales. We've got a crisis in Australia for wildlife. Will you support this too and do match funding? Of course, that seemed like great value for them. They own the land. In the end, it's their bricks and mortar. And as you pointed out before, it's not the bricks and mortar that achieves the goals. It's the laboratories. It's the 100,000 school kids that go through and become future wildlife conservationists. We have a university degree that's run out of there now. So, you know, future leaders, our future leaders program, I'm hoping that a future prime minister has done their degree with Sydney Uni and Taronga. You know, that's the long-term game. So we got the support for match funding for every dollar that we raised. The state government would support us on that. And that was crucial. So much of our work relies on government support because we work with National Parks hand in glove. Our rewilding programs, our breed for release programs, all those can't happen unless we've got great habitat that's been cared for and looked after that we can go in and work in and make sure there's enough food and release them at the right times and then have them protected, you know, from foxes, cats and all the other things. So getting the government support was really powerful. And then the hard yards are done. Going back to your supporter base, telling them about the vision, giving them the confidence that it's going to happen because now we've got a seed donor that is a supporter and they're highly respected in their community. Their judgment is well respected. So when you go to others, they go, oh, well, if that person thinks this is a good idea, then maybe I'll join in too. And then of course, you know, we still run, you know, all that shoe leather work that all fundraisers know. It's literally on the streets, the events, all the dinners, the coffees. Those are the bits that people don't see. The gold dinner equivalent is just the start. That's an opportunity to introduce yourself to a room full of people. And then the real work is the 12 months after that, as you go and meet with those people and bring them into the organization get them to see you work, develop a relationship. And it is a relationship and it's a relationship of trust and giving them opportunities to actually enjoy giving or committing because they may not give for another two years, but meeting other people that are like-minded, you know, that have a similar interest in wildlife conservation and in education more broadly. The motivations of donors are so broad and varied and it takes emotional intelligence to understand where the, the hot buttons for each of us are. Yes, absolutely. Emotional intelligence and an extraordinary vision, which culminated in the opening of the Institute in October 2018 by the then Duke and Duchess of Sussex. And many of your donors were there on that day. Can you tell me what that day was like and why was it important to have your donors there? Look, it was a very special day. As I say, there's probably 
two or three similar institutions anywhere in the world. And for Australia and Taronga to have that, I have to say the donors and I were very proud. We had a thought about imagine if we could get the Duke and Duchess to open it, you know, because it just so happened they were going to be in Australia at that time to put conservation science and education on the global stage by having them there. And we ended up with 1.1 billion people looking at it and seeing it, you know. So um, I think, you know, the media team, credit, tick the box they got it that day. (laughs) Can't ask for more than that. No. But of course, these people have been on a long journey and we forget about time. You know, the build takes over two years. This is a very complex building. It's got classrooms, it's got laboratories, it's got wildlife that stay there and live there. And it's, you know, pathology labs, cryo preservation labs, you know, there's a broader range of Great Barrier Reef species in cryopreservation there than anywhere else in the world. Over 30 species of Great Barrier Reef uh, preserved there for reseeding. So it's a complex build. And before that, me talking about it for three or four years, you know, those poor people had to put up with me carrying on and getting excited and waving my arms around. So it's a long journey and it's got its highs and lows. To provide opportunities like that is, is very special and it keeps them with you, you know, for the next visionary project. They're hoping I run out of steam before they do, and I, <laughs> I, I hope I never run out of steam. <laughs> so it was a pretty special day then. It oh. was. It was a. It was a very special day, and to have that opportunity, and it took a lot of people to to, to create that situation. But again, it gave a really good profile to the cause for Australian wildlife and their preservation, and it gave our donors an opportunity to be rewarded also and have a very special privilege that we're able to bring to them. Bequests have been and continue to be an important part of Taronga's income stream. And while you said zoos and aquariums haven't tended to raise a significant amount through philanthropy to date, that is gradually changing. But it's interesting, Bequests has and continues to be a really important source of income for you. Could you tell us a little bit about Helen Molesworth's Bequest and how that came about? The bequests part of the business, when you're not a fundraiser, it feels a little bit weird at first and it's taken me a while to get used to it. I have to give credit to the foundation team because when I see the way that they bring joy to people in the later stages of their life who, you know, in some cases their family's busy doing other things and I have been very, very conscious that I never, ever want to feel like we're being manipulative and building relationships that are for utility. Our fundraising team builds genuine relationships with our bequesters. We are a business, but they are genuinely friends of Taronga and our team. And when I see the joy that we've been able to bring to people like Helen through her life and stimulate her interest and get her excited again and get her along to events and be a part of it and enjoy and and the warmth of our lovely foundation team and, of course, the joy that wildlife bring to anyone, all of us, I actually feel really good about it. I feel really good about our bequesting program now and the way we work with our future bequesters. And it, it has become a reliable income stream for Taronga. And, you know, every now and then you get a, a surprise big gift like this. Look, it probably wasn't a surprise. The size of the gift was a surprise. But, uh, you know, we have had long relationships with a number of our bequesters 
And even after they've passed away, our team has been actively involved in the funeral service and setting things up and coordinating. And to me, that's lovely to see because that's way after the work's been done and they're still genuinely committed to the individual. And I think, you know, I lie in bed at night okay with our bequesting program because I know we are very genuine about the way we do that. With Helen's gift, it helped enable a purpose-built sea lion breeding facility. Why is that important? Tell me a little bit about the impact of her gift then for the zoo. It's interesting. Sea lions, Australian sea lions, if someone says to me, you know, what are your favourite animals? I'm not allowed to tell you, of course, because my favourite animal is whichever exhibit or keeper I'm standing with at the time. (laughs) Otherwise, I'll be in deep trouble. But in the podcast studio, what would your answer be? But I can say that probably one of the most beautiful animals on the planet is the Australian sea lion. The female Australian sea lion is this silver and black so beautifully designed to move through the water, so mischievous. They're like a naughty Kelpie in the water. That's the only way I can describe it. And I've got a naughty Kelpie, so I can say that with uh, experience. Yet their numbers still haven't recovered from the seal hunting over 100 years ago. So the situation is still pretty serious. We're seeing more fur seals around now, Australian fur seals. They've come back a little bit quicker. We really, ashamedly as a nation, we don't understand the ecology of seals, platypus, many of our beautiful frog species, so many of our unique special species, we still don't have a good understanding of their ecology, their biology and their breeding. We needed good facilities here so that those sea lions, all our animals that come in are rescue that are not in a position to go back into the wild. You know, they're usually, you know, shark attacks and things like that because they've been sick. But now we have a really good program for rescue. Um, You know, we've got great experience there in handling them in close quarters. We do a lot of work down, you know, our scientists get involved. We work down in Montague Island. I think one of the exciting things about having a science team and what Helen's work does, Helen's support did, is it created facilities for our keepers and scientists to work hand in glove. You've got those that are experts with the animals and those that have the scientific experience and knowledge. A really little example of that, of a good partnership working, was to understand what seals ate 100 years ago in the Antarctic. And how do you do that? Well, you go to the museum and you get some seal whiskers from the early explorers who ate seal and collected the whiskers. And then you train the seals that we feed, you know, that have come in from the wild. You train them and you get their whiskers. And then through chemical analysis and electron microscopes and other electrophoresis, et cetera, you identify what the diet of a wild seal a hundred years ago was versus the diet of a seal that we, you know, bring in that's been injured in the wild today, or a seal that's ended up somewhere that needs to go back into the wild by snipping off a bit of a whisker and being able to do that analysis with it. You can't do that without the scientist. You can't do that without the Australian Museum. And you can't do that without the, the behavioural biologists, the keepers who can train the seals to stand still. I mean, these are wild animals. They're not, you know, they haven't been bred for a couple of hundred years like a dog in non-stressful situations because, you know, you want to take blood samples and do all these other things. And we can ultrasound. We can do all sorts of things to animals that feel 100% comfortable with it because of the husbandry skills that the keepers bring. And Helen's Molesworth's gift creates the facilities for us to do that safely and provide all sorts of insights that have impact on climate change understanding right through to the changing diet of seals in the 21st century versus to the 19th century. What a powerful legacy. Mm. It's very compelling. 
One of your greatest priorities right now is currently your wildlife hospital campaign. Can you tell me a little bit more about why this wildlife hospital is so important to build in your new facilities and what the impact of it will be? Almost by accident, Taronga's run two wildlife hospitals for decades, 30 or 40 years. And over that time, we've learned a lot about rescuing and rehabbing Australian wildlife. And that builds on all the knowledge for looking after four and a half thousand wild animals across our two zoos. You know, we get in a lot of injured and damaged and diseased wildlife from around Australia and particularly across New South Wales. I think that the fires, and we saw this coming for a long time, but my son did veterinary science and he ended up going to a university outside Australia because we wanted to send him to a university that had a real focus on wildlife. Now, the universities in Australia do have courses on wildlife, but it's a little bit part of the program. And, you know, obviously growing up as a latchkey kid in a zoo, he wanted to have a big focus (laughs) on wildlife. So he went overseas to uh, do vet science in New Zealand, actually, at Massey. What that says is that the skill set isn't necessarily, the capabilities aren't necessarily out there in large scale to care for wildlife, Australian wildlife in a crisis. And our wildlife is pretty special, as we all know. The bushfires and on the back of, you know, one of the worst droughts in history meant that Australia needed to respond to a crisis and particularly the eastern seaboard. Our capacity as a nation to respond was very, very poor for wildlife. We didn't do too bad a job for people, although many lives were lost, but it's nothing compared to the 1.8 billion animals that lost their lives and the habitats out there now that look green after three years of rain but actually won't be climax communities that can have high carrying capacity for a wide range of species for about 15 years. You know, that looks green, but it's all the same sort of species and they're growing fast and then some will die. And obviously, you know, that ecosystem needs to reform. So there's a really clear gap in our capability as a nation in responding to wildlife crises, whether it's disease outbreak, like the frog die-off that we saw up and down the eastern seaboard of Australia a year and a half ago, we were receiving more platypus than we could take after the fires because of all the ash running into the waterways. And in the drought, again, we were platypus coming in from everywhere. We had ramping, just like we've heard for humans at the emergency wards. We had ramping that I will lose sleep over for the rest of my life. Our veterinary teams out in the field at bushfire sites that absolutely have post-traumatic stress from what they seen and had to deal with. Yet, on the other hand, we have such an enthusiastic society and community out there who wants to help, but they need to be feeding the right things out there, not leaving food out so that the cats that have survived just come in and get the wildlife when they're eating it. We need to have wildlife carers, 4,500 in New South Wales alone, who really want to help, but give them the skills. We have 70 or 80 vets that have said in New South Wales alone that they will absolutely take in wildlife and look after them. Obviously, they'll need to pass them on to us. They can't keep them there for long periods for rehab, but they will do that triage and emergency work up front, but give us the skill sets. And all the vet nurses out there are the same. So we've got a society that is absolutely committed, but we don't have the skill sets. So what we're doing is creating two world-leading wildlife specialist veterinary teaching hospitals. So these are teaching hospitals, just like Royal North Shore or POW or the Austin or whatever it is, but they specialise in wildlife and they specialise in veterinary care. Our vision is to create capacity right across this nation for wildlife, 
veterinary nursing, and of course, wildlife carers. And we've started that program. We've got some seed funding for teaching. We've got packages out there for RFS responders. It's even been used, downloaded 4,000 times internationally. You know, these are simple packages. This is what to do when you come across wildlife after a bushfire. In Greece, obviously in North America, we've seen it all happening. But what there isn't anywhere in the world is specialist teaching hospitals in wildlife veterinary care. So we're creating one in Sydney and one in Dubbo, so one regional. And of course, that'll have lecture theatres that has very big camera set up so all the students can sit around and watch the surgery that's going on, understand how the postmortems get go and bring that out so that we can teach the next generation of vets, vet carers, vet nurses, wildlife carers, and they can have those skills. So whether it's a die-off because of disease, drought, bushfire, or who knows what else will come, but we have a first responder team that is in the tens of thousands across this nation rather than the hundreds. That's what these two wildlife hospitals are about. And uh, it's an exciting project. And of course, it will also hopefully be putting vets that are trained out into all the other little wildlife hospitals that are popping up, you know, the wonderful koala hospitals that we're seeing on the coast and things like that. But you need somewhere to be pumping them out. Taronga's got to be the Harvard University of wildlife care, right? That's what we're doing. (laughs) Absolutely. And it's a very compelling case. But I love how you framed what is essentially a capital build within the context of such a compelling case and a unique case that the zoo can occupy that no one else can. But the sheer capacity building you are doing for this nation through this type of program is extraordinary. Now, you need to raise $40 million for it. You've secured $12.5 million from a sort of cornerstone donor, also anonymous to date. How much time do you need to secure the rest and how much from government versus philanthropy? Yeah. So again, we went to the government and said, brick for brick, please. And they've been really wonderful in that support. We've got about 13 and a half million to raise and we've got about 12 months to get those commitments. So we're at the pointy end now. And sometimes that last 10 to 12 can be harder than you think. So anyone who's interested and supportive, (laughs) please give me a call. I'll personally have a coffee with you. But uh, of course now we've got a range of really good, significant donors that have come on board and supported. We've used the same principles. Our seed donor is someone who's highly respected in our community. Other people are coming on board. We've got a wonderful chair in David Paradise, who's chairing our fundraising works here. And we've got some really good supporters behind us. But yeah, that last 13 and a half million we're working on, we will go out and do a public campaign, but we want to secure more significant gifts before then. Obviously, with that funding, we've been able to start work on the hospital at Dubbo. And because we were able to commit the cash to let the tender, the one at Taronga in Sydney, which will be pretty high tech because we want to be able to share what we're doing globally, you know, through obviously the wonderful, you know, through the internet and all the devices that we have access to now. We haven't been able to let the tender for that. We're um, finalising the designs, but these are also rescue and rehab centres. So when raptors or big eagles and things like that come in, after they you know, recover from whatever injury they've got, they need rehab, they need the physio, they need to be able to learn to fly again and build it up. So we need giant aviaries for them to be able to practice that. And you know, all those sorts of things that go on behind the scenes that people can't imagine that all cost a lot of money. <laughs> pathology labs, there's the disease labs and all that. We can't send our pathology off to you know, the local pathology works. We have our own pathology facilities on site at both hospitals. All these things behind the scenes. We also want to bring them front of house because we want 
the 2 million visitors a year and the 150,000 school students that come to, to our zoos to see what is going on and understand and be inspired to care. So, you know, they are the influencers and the leaders in the future for our wildlife. So these um, wildlife teaching hospitals have to do everything that the big teaching hospitals across our nation that we're proud of do for humans. It's interesting, though, how you said at the outset your priorities were being able to articulate a compelling vision for the zoo going forward. First of all, to make it financially stable and then have that compelling vision and actually deliver it. In the time since you have been at the zoo for 22 years, you have done exactly that. You have built an extraordinary place that has extraordinary impact and continuing to build capacity and inspire people to want to be a part of. Earlier this year in 2022, you were awarded the Fundraising Institute of Australia's Fundraising Champion of the Year Award. I was going to ask you the question, what does that look like? But I think for our listeners, you have been championing fundraising for the past interview in such a beautifully compelling way. But I guess a final sort of comment on to other CEOs listening to this, why is it so important to be actively involved in fundraising for your achieving your vision for the organisation? Look, it's building that trust and who better to seal a vision than the CEO because they have the power and authority to implement that between themselves and the chair. Who else is going to actually lead the charge? That's your job. I said to our keeping teams early on when I started at the zoo, we were going through a significant cultural change program. If you really are here for the wildlife, you need to be able to articulate their story for them. You are the communicator. So you can't just work behind the scenes on the animals. You absolutely need to be a communicator and get uncomfortable and get out front of house. Now, I think, you know, if you visit either of our zoos, you'll see they're the best. They make, they put me to shame. They're wonderful communicators because they love they're, you know, what they're advocating for. And I think CEOs absolutely need to do that. The strategy, creating the vision, and then getting out and selling that vision is our job. Well, it is a job that you do incredibly well as award-winning champion of fundraiser of the year. But Cam, (laughs) thank you you so very much for your time. And I cannot wait to see you achieve even more extraordinary things ahead. Thank Thank you, Melissa. Key learnings. Evolution of fundraising activities alongside the zoo's vision for impact. Fundraising has grown from a tactical approach to a much more sophisticated major gifts program that supports the key strategic priorities of the zoo, such as the Institute for Science and Learning, and now the Wildlife Animal Hospital at Taronga Zoo, Sydney, and Taronga Western Plains Zoo. Delicate negotiations across philanthropy, government and corporate investment secures the major capital priorities for the zoo. The zoo receives investment from government, philanthropy and corporates, and each comes with their own requirements, motivations, timeframes and deliverables which need to be met. This requires complex planning, sophisticated negotiation and consistent and sound processes with a level of agility to leverage and respond to opportunities as they arise. The CEO plays a critical role in overseeing this and leading on engagement and negotiations with each of these key stakeholders. The CEO is champion of fundraising. Cameron Kerr received the FIA Fundraising Champion Award is an important demonstration in the critical role the CEO plays. But one of the most powerful things I reflect upon is the pure passion and commitment to wildlife conservation that he carries throughout everything he does that philanthropists will just want to be a part of. 
Thank you for listening to Raising It. We hope this episode has demonstrated the power of philanthropy to create transformational social impact and will inspire you to realize your own noble ambitions. For more information, please go to nobleambition.com.au. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a review and make sure you subscribe so you don't miss an episode.